0: Welcome to the Wealthsteading Podcast. This is episode 178. Today is March 13th, 2016. I'm your host, John Pagliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at InvestableWealth.com. Well, I've been away for a while, it's great to be back behind the Wealthsteading microphone. I just returned from the Pacific Northwest. It was a fantastic uh, trip. I took my son along with me, got to see some old friends as well as some clients I always love having an opportunity to meet with my clients face-to-face, so that was really enjoyable. And then on this trip, I was also able to put together a couple of well-steading uh, meetups or get-togethers. I'll try and do more of those as I travel around the country. It's not only fun to meet those of you in the listening audience, but it's also very intellectually stimulating. On this last trip, let me see, I'm going to do this in the top of my head so I might leave some interesting people out, uh, and I apologize for that ahead of time, but at our meetups, I got to meet new people that I'd never met before. There was a guy that was a microbiologist, another one that was currently on military active duty serving in the Green Berets. There was a guy that was an inventor and had actually appeared on Shark Tank. And then one of the small business owners made tombstones. So how's that for diversity? Well, it's always fun and absolutely makes for interesting conversation. As far as upcoming trips, I know I'll be out in uh, Ohio, I'll most likely be in Texas, and I'll be in Las Vegas. So more to come on those things. But let's get down to business. The last four weeks, the stock market has been performing extremely well. Now in this episode, I don't want to go into a full market analysis. I'll probably come back and talk about that uh, later this week as things develop. I really want to see what happens after the Federal Reserve Open Market uh, Committee meeting on this Wednesday. So I'm really holding off judgment till then. I will say this, I remain extremely cautious. I did not buy into this recent uptrend. I'm continuing to hold my 25% position in the U.S. dollar, which is through the exchange-traded fund UUP. Now, the dollar has not performed very well in the last week, but that position is still positive for me. I'm going to stay in it for now because I believe that long term the dollar still does offer a level of safety where we might get a little bit return on our money, but at the same time, I don't expect there to be a major pullback or a significant loss in the dollar like we could see if we invested directly in the stock market. So that's a safe haven position for me. I'm also continuing to hold the 5 to 10% position in Walmart. Now, while that position is done very well over the last, you know, probably eight weeks or so. I bought into it earlier than that. I bought into it, I believe, uh, beginning, middle of August 2015. My overall position there is probably down something like maybe five and a half, six percent. But I am continuing to hold that. I like Walmart. If I didn't own it now, I'd be buying it anyways. And then finally, personally, I do have a short that I'm continuing to maintain in gold. I'm not doing that with any client money. This is just the personal position of my own portfolio that I attribute to speculative you know, trading or what I would call you know, Las Vegas money. That position is down about 5% right now, but I am continuing to hold that. I still believe that that trade could move in my favor. Again, though, this is highly speculative. Nothing I'm doing with client money, nor is it anything that I think that you should be doing unless you have money that you just want to speculate with. I had also moved in and out of an oil position. That's something that happened really quickly. I held it for less than a week. I didn't have the opportunity to really post about it or talk about it here on the podcast. So I won't go into detail on that one. Uh, But I did catch a nice upward trend in an oil stock. Again, that was a position that was extremely speculative. It was Las Vegas money. It worked in my favor on this trade. But something like that is never anything you want to do with a large portion of your portfolio. Because, you know, easy come, easy go. Oh, but I'm digressing here. Uh, in any case, what I wanted to talk about today is not necessarily the nuts and bolts of the stock market or what's really going on right now. But what I did want to do was give you some idea of why I'm not participating in this recent uptrend. I remain very concerned. This goes back to, you know, lessons that I've learned over the last 30 some years of investing. One of those more painful ones was what I had learned over the summer of 2008. I had been 100% out of that market. I had been in cash. I decided to go 100% into the S&P 500 through SPY. You know, this was a position that I was going to hold for a week or two or maybe three. I was just trying to catch a, an uptrend in what I knew was an otherwise dirty market. But what happened in that trade was that it soon fell apart, it was only a counter-trend rally, and that's what I think we're in right now, but at that time, this would have been the summer of 2008, probably early June or so, the market was moving up, it was in a counter-trend rally, I jumped in 100%, I thought it was a sure thing, You know, again, maybe I just sit on it for a day or two, pick up a couple percent, maybe I could ride it out for two or three weeks, make, who knows, 10-15%, well that didn't happen, in a few days it quickly fizzled out, And I thought, well, I'll hold it a little longer because it'll come back, right? Then I'll hold it a little longer because it'll come back. And it didn't, and it didn't. And over the period of the next, I don't know, four and a half, six, eight weeks, whatever it was, I lost a good 18% of my position. Now, again, this is at a time when I knew that we were in a troubled market. I had been 100% out in cash, but I got impatient. I wanted to make a little bit extra money. I thought, you know, I was the smartest guy in the market. And then over a period of about a month or two, I took like an 18-20% beating and loss in my overall total portfolio. Now, I was smart enough at that point to get out of the market. I licked my wounds. I sat back. I studied things. And then I just watched the market unravel and turn out to be the worst recession of my lifetime. And I resisted the urge to jump back in. I waited out the next six or seven months until I felt that we had reached a point of exhaustion in the market where it was unlikely that it could go lower. Now, I didn't think that it wouldn't necessarily go any lower. I just thought that if it did move lower, it was one of those kind of things where it was going to be a catastrophic failure, and the whole financial system would fall apart, and money wasn't going to matter anyways, or that it would get better. And so I did get back into the market. This would have been early in March of 2009. I got into the market a week or so before it ultimately had bottomed out, but then I was able to ride that up over the you know, coming months and years into making a significant profit. And so what I learned during that period and what really solidified in my mind is that you don't want to jump into an unstable market. I've talked in many, many episodes about staying off of thin ice. If you're a new listener, you might want to go back and catch some of those old episodes where I talk about that hazard, right? I I was a kid that grew up in western Pennsylvania. I went to school up on Lake Erie. I spent a portion of my life living in Minnesota. People do a lot of ice fishing in those locations. And every year when it's early in the winter, you'll see people go out on the ice prematurely. The ice will crack and they'll fall in. Or likewise at the end of the season, you know, sometime late into the spring when the ice is uh, thawed out too much, people will still go out onto the ice, the ice will crack and they'll fall through into the water. My theory about ice fishing has always been that I don't go out into the ice until I see that a guy go out there that's bigger and fatter than me, and then I walk in his footsteps. I think that's a pretty good analogy for the way that we want to trade in a turbulent stock market. I know that I'm not smart enough to pick the bottom of a market, and so I want to enter a market cautiously to minimize the risk of having a catastrophic loss. Now, I I use different rules to determine these based on the degree of volatility and what's happening in that particular market. So each one is different. If they were all exactly the same, they would have a formula and we could easily jump in and out of these things, but we can't. We can't perfectly time the market. I've been very concerned over the last year or so with the market that we're currently in. And because of that cautiousness, some of my profit potential has been held back. But at the same time, when you saw the markets down uh, earlier this year and back in August, I wasn't losing money during those major pullbacks because I had already been out of the market. So it's important to not only know when to sell when you're somewhere near the top or when you're in a bull market or a rally that's kind of getting long in the tooth, you may get out early. You may, may get out a little late. The point is that you want to get out. You want to get out of that troubled water. You want to get off of that thin ice. Those are your sell points. But the buy points are equally as important. You need to know when to get back into that market. I've been hesitant to get into this market because I do think that we are currently in a market that's rolled over. This market has been in a bull market status for over seven years. It's the second longest in history. Corporate profits have been declining for about 17 months in a row now. We're seeing not only declining profits here in the United States, but this is a global phenomena. We're seeing across the globe a slowdown in trade. This is something that doesn't easily get cured overnight. And so after the flash crash on August 24th and 25th, we saw a lot of volatility there for about a month. And then in September, we got another bottom to that market. And then that market recovered and and went on to, to make some pretty nice highs into November and December, but it fell apart. It had never reached those previous highs that were hit in June or July of 2015. When you look at that on a chart, it starts to look like what we call a head and shoulders pattern. That action was forming the right-hand side of the shoulder on the chart. It was indicating that we were in a market that was rolling over, a market that had peaked out and was rolling over. And that's characterized by lower highs and lower lows. And that's exactly what we've seen since July of last year. Now, I'm not saying that we're going into an economic collapse or some kind of a meltdown. I don't think that the banks are going to fail. I don't think that this is probably going to be as bad as what we saw in 2008. But I don't think the worst of it is over yet. And so when I look at the alpha, you know, the amount of return I'm going to get in the market, I look at what my upside is and I look at what my downside is. And with this market, I continue to see a limited upside, but I see a substantially lower downside. For example, looking at the previous high that the market hit, that was somewhere around 2130 in the S&P 500, and looking at the level of where corporate profits are now and maybe where they're likely to be, could this market over the coming weeks or months, uh, you know, could there be a lot of enthusiasm that comes in and a lot of good corporate news, and could this market go up to maybe hit 2200 on the S&P 500, 2250, 2275? Well, I don't think it's likely, but it is possible. You know, the Federal Reserve could come out with quantitative easing for, there could be all kinds of stimulus packages, the oil price could stabilize. I mean, all this good news could come out, and yes, maybe the market could go up that high. I don't think it's likely, but it's possible. On the other side, I look at the downside, and it wouldn't take a lot of bad news to drive this market down to significant lows. We've already seen the market deteriorate down to like the 1810, 1820 level. So, any type of minor shock to the system could easily move this market down to 1790 or 1750 or maybe even 1620. That wouldn't be an end of the world apocalyptic scenario for that to happen. It could just be a little bit more bad news. And so that's why I remain cautious. I've learned through my own very painful experiences over the last 30 years. That when you invest in the S&P 500, when it is below its 100-day moving average, the risk of a loss is much greater than when it's above its 100-day moving average. I blogged about this over at Investable Wealth. I've talked about it on this podcast many times. That is just one indicator of the level of risk and the level of thin ice and turbulence that the market may be in. Well, right now, the S&P 500 has just recently barely broken above its 100-day moving average. I think for the entire length of time of 2016, so two and a half months now, it's only been above that 100-day moving average for like three days. It closed above that average for maybe three days. It was only on Friday that the S&P 500 broke above its 200-day moving average for the first time this year in 2016. So yes, while over the past month, the market has moved up nicely, and it could continue to move, you have to be very cautious when that index is below a major moving average, like a 100 or 200-day moving average. So you can't base all your decisions on that. But the fact of the matter is that you'll never have a catastrophic loss if you stay out of the market when the S&P 500 is below its 100-day moving average. I just throw that out as what I believe is a relevant piece of information. Moving averages are very powerful, they're very easy to calculate, and it's something that I think that you should pay attention to. The market that we're currently in hit its lowest bottom back on February 11th. The S&P hit a low at that day, and then it's pretty much consistently gone up over these uh, past four weeks. I believe a lot of that rise in the S&P 500 has to do with the price of oil. Because at the same time, right around February 11th, oil hit its lowest point. I think it got down to, I don't know, somewhere around $27 a barrel. It's recovered nicely since then. As I record this episode, oil was right around $38.50. But as I said in previous episodes, and as I blogged about over at investablewealth.com, there is an imbalance between supply and demand in oil. There's also a big imbalance in the global trade in terms of products and services that are available versus demand for those products and services. So we're in a world right now that's very deflationary where we have a great deal of supply with limited demand. That's something that's not easily worked out overnight. Now, one of the main reasons that oil hit a bottom on February 11th is because OPEC came out and said that they were going to have some price stability, that they were trying to organize their members so that they didn't increase production anymore. Russia joined in and said they would agree to that. And a lot of that talk helped raise the price of oil. And I want to emphasize that it was talk. It wasn't necessarily action. The other thing that I want to put an emphasis on this is that they were promising not to increase their level of production. Well, right now, major producers like Saudi Arabia and Russia are pretty much producing full out anyways. I don't know that they have anything left to produce. But because of the revolution that we've seen in the United States with shale oil production, uh, that's part of horizontal drilling and with fracking, We've seen that Saudi Arabia is no longer the swing producer. We've come to a point where we've hit not peak oil, but we've hit peak OPEC. OPEC has had a cartel and a control on the petroleum industry for the last 40 plus years. Well, we've seen that come to an end because of the large advances that have been made in U.S. oil production. And and I talk about U.S. oil production. That same technology, though, will migrate and will move around the world, and so it, it won't be just a U.S. phenomena. You have to look back to 2005. In 2005, the United States was producing less than 5 million barrels of oil a day. Today, even after we've had this glut in oil and we've had consolidation in the oil industry and we've seen some you know, over 2,000 small oil wells in the United States shut down, even though we've seen that, the U.S. is still producing in excess of 9 million barrels a day. So we went from under 5 to over 9 in less than a decade with more capacity, more reserves, and a lot more pumping and drilling capacity in the ground. The only reason we're not tapping that oil is because right now it's not economically justified to do that. But the oil is there. And that capacity can be turned off or turned on almost as simply as turning a valve. The United States has now become one of the top one or two or three oil producers in the world in terms of not only production but in terms of known reserves. And that swing capacity has now shifted from Saudi Arabia to the United States that dynamic did not change on February 11th the only thing that changed was the cartel trying to fix pricing and fix volumes and flex a little bit of their muscle i think those actions are too little and too late and even if they do cap production levels the overall demand for oil is not growing at the rate it needs to sustain pricing at the old levels of you know 80 to 120 dollars a barrel and so I think we are going to see low, lower oil prices. In fact, I personally think they're going to dip back down below that $27 a barrel level. Now, I don't know how long they'll stay there, but I do think they will go lower. And consequently, I think that this positive effect that raising oil prices have had on our stock market will work the other direction. And, will, and that will be one of the reasons why we see the market go on to make new lows. The global slowdown is real and it's not something that can be fixed simply by OPEC saying that they're going to put a cap on production levels or simply because the leaders of the G20 get together and agree not to have a currency war. That talk does not have the same effect as actions. And so that really takes me to the topic that I ultimately wanted to talk about in this episode, which are negative interest rates. Negative interest rates are something that 10 or 20 years ago, people would have thought you were insane had you even brought them up. But we've gotten to a point in this economy where deflationary pressures have become so severe that we've not only seen fringe elements of the economy or small countries like uh, perhaps Switzerland or Finland where they've gone to negative interest rates. But now we've seen this with major countries and economic organizations like Japan, which went negative interest rates uh, right around February 15th, 16th. And then just last week, the European Central Bank went negative as well. Some investors are looking at that as more um, stimulation that's going to help the economy. And just as we saw things like uh, QE3 help the stock market, people are betting that these negative interest rates are likewise going to stimulate the stock markets. Well, I really disagree. I think we've gotten to a point where these negative interest rates are equivalent to, you know, jumping the shark. They're just beyond the pale and they don't show the effectiveness of central bankers, but uh, quite the contrary. They're actually showing the ineffective central bank policies that we have in place. The central bank's inability to significantly create inflation and move the economy in, the, in uh, you know, an upward direction. And so I'm not getting excited seeing these negative interest rates. I'm actually becoming more pessimistic that we are going to have a global slowdown and that there's virtually nothing that these central banks can do about it. I would say nothing and that's short of they still can go back and try and do a lot of stimulus spending. That's something that we can see maybe with some positive effects in Europe. I know it's going to be talked about a lot here in the United States, you know, shovel ready jobs, get out there and spend the money, improve the roads and bridges and all those kind of things, take care of all this neglected infrastructure. Well, yes, that, you know, could help the economy to some degree, but you can look to China and see that that's what they've been doing for at least the last 20 years. That's what created the magnitude of the commodity bubble that we're in, and that's why consequently these commodity prices have collapsed so the move to negative interest rates in japan and in europe i see that as further clarification of the bad global conditions that we're in that are not going to turn around or change overnight and i think the best way to illustrate this problem is to mention the european formula of 72550 Now, this is nothing new. This is nothing I've come up with. I know Angela Merkel, the uh, the Chancellor of Germany, has has talked about it uh, many times. It's been discussed for probably at least five years or more. But the problem with all this discussion is, just like I mentioned with OPEC, it's just talk. No one's doing anything about it. People over the last maybe five years, I guess charitably you can say maybe over the last ten years, have come to the realization that Europe is in a death spiral. Japan, incidentally, as well. Everything I'm saying about Europe, you can pretty much say about Japan. And in fact, Japan is about ten years ahead of the curve. They're that much farther in the spiral. But it really all boils down to those numbers I just quoted. The, the death spiral formula for Europe is 7, 25, 50. And again, this has been talked about and talked about, so it's nothing new. People realize the problem, but they're doing nothing about it. And perhaps, as you oftentimes would get with a death spiral, there's nothing you can do about it. I bring this up because this really illustrates the extent of the global slowdown that we're in that it isn't something that's going to be easily fixed with an announcement from OPEC or with a central bank going to negative rates or with maybe just a little uh, uptick in the price of oil. This is a systemic, secular problem. It's affecting all the mature, developed uh, democratic nations. It's not going away, and growth from Asia or from emerging or developed markets are not countering the trend either and so as I look at the recovery that we've had in the last four weeks in our stock market I still remain on the sidelines I still remain cautious I know that this problem isn't going to get worked out anytime soon, but that doesn't mean that we won't see some nice significant rises in the market. In fact, I think that the transition, uh, the rotation out of different asset classes, and the overall movement that's created by this is going to create some extremely lucrative uh, profits to be made. And that's why I do remain cautious and I remain in cash. I want to keep my money readily available. I want to keep my powder dry. So that when the right opportunity comes along, I can pounce on it and profit from it. Uh, But I digress. So those numbers, 7, 25, 50, if you're not familiar with them, it's something you should know. That death spiral formula for Europe. Europe makes up 7% of the world's population. They hold 25% of the world's wealth. And they account for 50% of the world's welfare payments. And that's welfare in the terms of social spending, things like health care, early retirement, government services, things of that nature. Now, the reason that's a death spiral is because those first two numbers are getting smaller and that last number is either remaining constant or getting higher. So 7% of the world's population, well, the Europeans as well as the Japanese, they are in negative demographics where each year their population is getting smaller. It's not growing. So that 7% number gets smaller every year. They become less and less a percent of the global population. And likewise, they're 25% of the world's wealth. Well, that keeps getting smaller. The reason they're going to negative interest rates now is to try and stimulate that economy. They've now moved their quantitative easing program up to about $88 billion a month. That exceeds what we did in our quantitative easing three program. They're doing that because despite all their previous stimuli, about half of the continent is still in recession. And those countries that are growing are, are collectively not growing more than 1%. And so you can't maintain a healthy, wealthy, Western civilization-type democracy with 1% or less growth. So they have declining demographics. They have declining economies, which are resulting in declining overall percentage of global wealth. And yet their social spending is you know, either remaining the same or certainly not declining. That's out of balance. It doesn't work. It is not sustainable. And all the talk, all the treaties, all the negotiations, none of that is going to make a difference. As long as their birth rate keeps going down and as long as their economies continue to contract, they cannot afford to support their social spending. So that demographic and that economic deflationary death spiral that we see in Europe is also what we see in Japan, and then when you factor in the amount of global deflationary pressures we have with the slowdown in growth in China, that has a spillover impact to the commodity producing countries like Canada and Australia and Saudi Arabia, places like that. But that has now been capped because commodity prices are anywhere from 50 to 80 percent of what they were just three years ago. That puts us into the deflationary, overleveraged, overcapacity situation that we're in right now, and it won't be easily resolved. Don't get wrapped up in irrational exuberance and buy into the market at a top just because some bureaucrat or cartel is telling you that uh, it's a green light and everything's safe. You have to use your discretion. You have to invest with caution. So, hey, it's great to be back. That'll wrap it up for today's episode. Stick with me. Come back on future episodes. I'll give you my commentary on where I think the economy is headed. I'll let you know about my particular stock positions. And as always, I'll try and provide you some wisdom on general wealth building principles and how you can achieve freedom in your own personal life. So until the next episode, this is John Pagliano wishing you the very best of returns.